0: Why does making friends as an adult feel so what hard? What should I wear on a first what the date? hell is a form? But that Why hookup is was I not good. What so do I want rating? my life to look like in five years?
1: We, we want to know too. Since 2012, the Every Girl has been an online destination to help women around the world achieve the life of their dreams. Now,
0: we're excited to bring you the same inspiring content with the Every Girl Podcast.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Every Girl podcast. It is Josie here. I know the feeling all too well of sitting in a gynecologist's office feeling anxious and stressed or even kind of embarrassed. Maybe I don't feel heard or listened to, and then I end up leaving feeling a lot more confused or stressed out than when I came in. I know that feeling. I felt it many times before, but optimal health and education around health is our right. And especially as women, it is so critical that we feel fully educated and empowered in our bodies. So, I wanted to have a gynecologist come on the podcast to answer all of your questions that maybe you haven't found the right answers to, or maybe you feel too embarrassed to ask because we've all been there too. So, we pulled all of you on Instagram for questions that you would want to ask a gynecologist, but maybe you're too embarrassed to ask, or maybe you haven't found the right answers that clicked with you. And all of your questions came pouring in. We've received dozens and dozens of responses pleading for help with painful periods or asking for clarification over a lot of fertility confusion. I want you to know that I listened to and resonated with and read every single one of your questions and I feel you. Health can feel so scary and it's easy to feel alone or not listened to, not heard when it comes to our healthcare, but I, along with today's guests, are here to change that. Our guest today is Dr. Lindsay Harper, an OBGYN based in Dallas, Texas, and a fellow of the American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She's also a founder of Rosie, an app and media platform that offers personalized solutions for sexual wellness. I've been trying Rosie myself for the past few weeks, by the way, and I am obsessed with it. We need more like this. Dr. Lindsay was named one of Forbes' top 53 women disrupting healthcare, so you know I picked the right doctor because we are all about a little disruption. We could not get to all of your questions, but we covered a lot. And yes, there were all the subjects that you might be too embarrassed to ask about from the 411 on discharge to when you should really start asking questions about fertility. I also asked her all of your personal questions from, you know, everything from preventing pregnancy to labiaplasties and squirting. Yeah, we really go there. The purpose of this Q&A is to make you feel empowered to take charge of your own health And to get rid of some of the shame and misinformation around female sexual and reproductive wellness. Obviously, this is not intended to be medical advice. Dr. Lindsay states multiple times in this episode how critical it is to find a doctor that you trust and to work with them for an individual personalized approach because everybody is different. Um, With that being said, I learned a lot in this episode like a lot. Um, So let's dive into it. A lot of fascinating topics and a lot of questions that you probably have had at some point in your life, but never felt comfortable to get answered. Please welcome Dr. Lindsay Harper to the Evergirl podcast. Dr. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us, especially in this very busy, busy time, busy week, spring break coming up for you. So thank you for being here. We have so many audience questions. I actually was just going to kind of like interview you and then have like an audience Q&A at the end, but we got so many questions. I'm like, we just got to lean in to all the questions and I like want people to get these questions answered. So thank you for joining us and for all of the expertise I know you
0: are about to share with us. Absolutely. I'm so glad to be here. And this is like one of my favorite things to do. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I really wanted this
1: conversation to be very much focused around maybe those like questions that people either are like too embarrassed to ask their gynecologist or, you know, they just maybe like don't even know to be seeking answers to. So there's a lot of very fascinating questions that a lot of them I'm like, I have never even thought of that on my own. So I'm very excited to hear all of your answers to these. Let's dive right in because there so much. Um, I want to start with period health because it's a topic that we talk about a lot on this podcast. We've talked about cycle syncing and different phases of hormones. So we've talked about periods often, um, but there are a lot of questions that I think people feel feel very confused about and are not sure where to get answers from. So first question, someone writes in, my cramps are sometimes so bad. I'm doubled over in pain. I've been dealing with it for years. Should I bring it up to my doctor? I'm afraid that I will just be dismissed. I feel like I have to walk in with a game plan on a similar vein. Someone else says, how can I advocate more for my bad period symptoms? Mine are very painful. I have huge blood clots. I've tried many doctors, but don't feel heard. So maybe if you could talk on the normalcy of, of period symptoms and also how to advocate for yourself with your when it comes to someone's doctor.
0: Absolutely. Gosh, two such important things, right? I think that when we grow up as young girls, as young women, and then as women, we are kind of taught like, there's just a lot of things that go along with being a woman that you kind of get over. You know what I mean? And I think period pain and just period, just everything in general is like, kind of like a suck it up mentality, unfortunately. And I think we maybe are passed that message down from the women that came before us because that's the message that they were told by their, you know, other family members or healthcare providers. But I think what's happening and what I really love about women's health today is there are so many, you know, the majority of OBGYNs that graduate residency are now women. In my residency class, four of the five of us were women. And I think, wow. and I love the one guy, shout out, Dr. <laughs> yeah. Good for I him. Literally love him. But the thing is, is I think once, There are women who are able to take ownership and positions of like where we're in power to ask questions. We start to think like, wait, wait a minute. Like, why do we all have, you know, so many women have period pain that's unanswered and not helped. Wait a minute. Why are so many women experiencing menopausal symptoms and just told to kind of get over it? wait a minute, why are so many of us after children just walking around peeing on ourselves whenever we sneeze or cough? Like none of this is okay. And I think this, the louder we can share that message and the sooner we can share it, you know, with medicine in general, with women in general, with our kids, the healthier that we will all be. And actually the more productive and the happier that we will all be as well. Right. Because I think the argument could be made that if these things were happening to men, that there would have been a solution centuries ago, which is I'll fair because to that. they're the ones, yeah. yeah, people solve problems that they relate to, that they experience. And so now that there are more, you know, women in positions of power in all aspects of life, I think we're kind of realizing that none of this is acceptable, right? It's not acceptable that every, you know, three to four weeks we're walking around or this person is doubled over in pain. That's absolutely unacceptable. And it's also most likely due to a medical diagnosis. She's probably has like a physiologic reason for that going on. And regardless, that pain should absolutely be treated. So I think once we are able to internalize those messages, like just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I have to tolerate really anything, Any. You know, if there's something that I don't like about my health or about the way that things are going, then it is our responsibility to speak up for ourselves and to advocate, which is kind of, you know, it's not the best situation to be in. But that's where we are right now. And that's what we've got to do sometimes to get the help that we need and deserve. So... You know, painful periods can be due to a lot of different things. There are a lot of different causes of them, but they're well-documented. It's not like it's a big mystery about what they are. You know, the thing that comes to my mind is that most women who have endometriosis, it takes them 10 years from the onset of their symptoms to when they are diagnosed. And maybe they start their period at 13, they start having painful periods at 15, and then they're in their mid-20s, but many times even older by the time that they're diagnosed. And that is tragic right? And so I really believe and want whomever you know wrote these two questions to really, if they don't feel comfortable talking to their doctor about it, then honestly, I would counsel you to either try to find a new physician, which I think is a, you know, speaking from a point of privilege, because in some communities, there aren't more doctors. That's the only doctor or they had to drive two hours to see that doctor in the first place, right? So that's not an option for everybody, but certainly in most big cities, there's more OBGYNs than you can count. So continue to work until you find one that you feel like is listening, because there are so many people who are very passionate and really want to help their patients and know a lot about these things. And then the second thing is, you know, whenever you're going to go speak with your OBGYN, whatever question you wrote in with today, write it down. Because even when I go to the doctor, I am just intrinsically a pleaser. I want everyone to feel comfortable and at ease and engaged. (laughs) And that includes my doctor. And she's also like one of my best friends. We used to be partners, like business partners. And also she delivered all of my babies. Like I know her extremely well, but I just want to go in and like do to do, you know, but so even I make a list because I'm like, okay, I do not want to forget this. This is so important. I've spent however many months or to this person's unfortunate, you know, story years thinking about this. And this is the time that has been designated to be by my insurance or whoever's, you know, paying for this to discuss these things. It has nothing to do with, you know, wanting to be friends or whatever. It has to do with getting your healthcare problem solved. And unfortunately, our time with our physicians is very limited. Whatever healthcare provider we're seeing is is very limited. So we have to run that meeting like, you know, we're we're meeting with the CEO of our company and the agenda has to be tight because there are lots of things to accomplish and there's not a lot of time. So I think when you frame it with those sort of, you know, pieces in place which is you deserve to, you know, live a happy and healthy life, there are compassionate and very knowledgeable providers out there who really want to help and, you know, you have to go in kind of with that healthcare agenda just because that's unfortunately medicine today, then I think a lot of those goals can be accomplished. And I would also want to really communicate and this is really not well understood, I would say generally is that There's this idea of the well woman exam, which is what we go in for. It's like our annual exam. Like you get your birth control refilled or they do your breast exam and your pap smear and STI screening. And then there is something totally separate, which is a problem visit. So your annual exam has, it already has an agenda. You didn't set the agenda. Your doctor set the agenda. She has a checklist of literally everything she's supposed to do for your insurance company during that exam. But if something surfaces during that exam, for example, painful periods, she may invite you to come back for another visit because that complaint, that problem, that experience, it needs its own time, right? And so that's how it's set up within insurance, within healthcare is for you to come back and to have dedicated time, not to do your well woman checklist, but to talk only about your painful periods what could be the potential causes, how do you get it diagnosed? And then what are the potential treatments? And so sometimes patients feel, because it's not well communicated, that they're being brushed off because they brought it up at that visit, right? At that well woman to visit and their doctor's like, okay, like make another appointment. We'll talk about that. And it feels, and the experience of that is like, oh, well, why didn't we talk? Why didn't, why did she not address that? Like clearly, you know, that's not her area of expertise or she doesn't believe me. But in reality, that's not the way that medicine is set up. And I think we as physicians could do a better job of communicating that. Insurance companies could do a better job of accommodating you know, a complex medical visit. But this is where we are. And so I think if we're talking about today in 2023, that's the best method to address because painful periods, most OBGYNs are extremely confident in handling that and should be able to help you for sure.
1: Those are all amazing tips. I would have never... to be like, oh, I need a separate visit just for my cramps because it's so true. Like you
0: need the, You deserve the designated time. Absolutely. And it's honestly like as a patient, because I'm a patient too, it's annoying to have to come back. We want to get it knocked out. Like my life is all about efficiency for better or for worse. And so that's not the healthcare experience that I want but that's how it is set up. And so we sometimes have to work within the system to get the results that we want while we're also working to recreate healthcare to be the future of what we want, but we can't let our health suffer in the meantime where there is that discrepancy between what we need and what we can actually get. I'm so glad you talked about like the system too, because I
1: hear that from a lot of people and we also got a lot of questions almost as like complaints about like I feel brushed off by my doctor. I like, why do they not look into all these other things? Like, why is it this way? So I'm glad that you talked on, it's the system in itself, which is changing. I think more women to be in a position of power to be like, no, no, like this isn't just like, sorry, you're a woman, it sucks, deal with it. Like there's actually reasons for these that deserve medical treatment and medical attention. So it's, the system is changing, but I love your advice to working within the system if people, if that's where people find themselves. And I think too, like the, like, I definitely have had the experience where you're in the doctor's office, exactly like you're saying, where you're like, oh, I don't want to take up more time. or like, oh, this is going to be a silly question. Like they're going to, because you feel that like, okay, I, I only have 15 minutes to get in and out. And, and there was the agenda that there was already said, if they've got to do all these things. So my questions feel like I'm just taking up this doctor's time and there's this, right, you know, waiting room full of patients. So I think that's so helpful too, of, of having a designated time just for that issue and and setting an appointment just for that, but also to know that no matter how the doctor is making you feel or whatever you're putting, you're emotionally feeling, you deserve the time and you deserve answers to every question you could ever have. So like that is your time. Take it no matter how you're feeling. It's still the time that Absolutely. you deserve. I think that's so helpful, Dr. Lindsay.
0: Well, I'm glad that you think that it's helpful. I tend to have long answers to short questions, but I am (laughs) extremely passionate about women's health. And also there are so many other physicians who are extremely passionate about it. And we really just kind of have to connect those dots, you know, because women need more and physicians want to do more. It's just how do we work together
1: to really get that accomplished? And there's a lot of moving pieces, but that's so helpful for people in the system to actually take control of their health. So this next question, someone wrote in, I've never considered this, but I'm so curious your answer. So does starting your period at an earlier age affect your fertility and what age egg quality declines?
0: Such a good question. So the, what we do know is that the age at which you start your period does likely affect the age at which you complete your periods or, or the onset of menopause. But there's also a lot of genetics at play, right? So while when we look at a large population, if you start younger, you might go into menopause a little younger. We also know that there are women whose moms started younger and you know stayed having regular periods before menopause longer. So it's really hard to make a generalization apply to an individual person because there are so many variances. But the, the short answer is yes that likely the sooner you start your period, that might correlate with a earlier menopause. But there are lots of variations within that very generic statement, which may make it not apply to an individual person. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. So for
1: example, like if someone got their period for the first time when they were like seven, eight, nine, kind of like the quote earlier ages, should they be more concerned about checking their fertility and likewise if someone who got their period when they're 15, 16, 17 be like, "Oh, I'm good till I'm 45." You know, I I have a lot of time. Like is that how you determine
0: fertility or no? No. And the reason why is because fertility is such a big deal, right? And we would the last thing we'd want to do is be like, oh, you're fine. And then you're not fine because there's nothing else to do. Like that's That window is closed and then that's unless you want to use an egg donor, you know, or something like that, which is obviously always on the table. But to me, it's like if I'm in that position, I told my husband on our first day that I wanted to have babies and lots of them. (laughs) So for me, like fertility is like, it was very, very important. And if someone had made a generalization to me, which I really don't love when we do in medicine, and said, you're going to be good, like you didn't start till you were 14, you're going to be good, like don't worry, Lindsay, and then something wasn't good, I would have been devastated, right? So what we have to do is, we can have this general body of scientific knowledge, but when it comes to each of us as individuals, There are genetic factors at play. There are environmental factors at play. There are medical factors at play, like to our last, you know, question, endometriosis, fibroids. There are, you know, so many pieces of the puzzle go into, you know, creating a new life that grows inside of our body. Like it's insane. I always talk to my kids, I'm like, and to patients too. The fact that like we can through sex, like create a whole other person that grows within it. Like so many truly billions of things have to go exactly right. And it's just sort of mind boggling. So I would never want to make a generalization that I couldn't verify to be true. And that is the case with fertility. Now the challenge with fertility, and I think this highlights another soapbox of mine, which is basically what we were talking about before, but in a really concrete example, is that we don't actually no matter what anyone's selling to people, have a good way to check on future fertility. That is just what it is. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So there's different ways of thinking about fertility. Egg quality is certainly one of them. Are your tubes open? We can check on that one. Are you ovulating each month? We can check on that one. You know, what's the sperm quality and quantity? We can check on that one. But the egg quality... And the sort of prediction of menopause is really, really tricky. So the egg quality test is called AMH, stands for anti-malarian hormone. And the way that it's been validated is for women who are experiencing infertility. So they've been trying to get pregnant for a year. They go to the infertility doctor, they have an AMH drawn, and then that is supposed to predict their likelihood of success of an IVF cycle. That's how AMH has been validated. But now it's been being shared as a way to predict future fertility, but it hasn't been validated in that way, meaning we don't have big studies to make inferences about what the results mean. And so while I know, and you know, and anybody who's walking on this planet knows that women deserve to be able to predict their future fertility because now we're all balancing our life goals, our careers, finding a partner or not. Like there's so many things going on that were different than they even were 30 years ago, but the science is not there. So I think we sometimes as patients on one side have things kind of being, you know, presented to us as this is amazing. Of course I would do this. And why also wouldn't my doctor tell me about it? But then on the physician side of things, we're like, oh, like we would love for that to be available, but also it's not validated so therefore we wouldn't recommend you doing it because we don't know how to interpret the results because we don't have the studies. So it's another really concrete example of where women's health should be, where we all believe it needs to be, but how we need the science to catch up to our, you know, to this place where we know and demand more. That's a very
1: important very helpful thing for people to know. I have so many fertility questions that we're going to get back to. Um and I think for people listening, I think All of these questions on fertility will clarify a lot when we get more deeper into that. Going back to like period-related period health questions, talk to me about
0: discharge. What's normal and what is abnormal? Totally. This is one of my favorite topics randomly, because I feel like it's so common. And like honestly, I was just talking to my husband about this last night. I'm like, I should just catalog the questions that people send me because that's clearly the information that needs to be out there, like friends or family members of friends or family members or just insert woman I know or tangentially have heard of here and like the texts that come in (laughs) and a lot of them are about discharge and people, I I mean, it's a big concern. And so the thing about discharge is discharge is really normal. I mean, I, this is kind of like not the sexiest comparison, but the vagina is a mucous membrane. And so in order to keep itself lubricated it, it makes stuff like your nose. I mean, how often are we like blowing our nose, or like your mouth, like saliva and spit. So it has to create its own discharge in order to maintain its specific environment. So number one, discharge in and of itself is not bad. And there are plenty of girls who are, you know, like, like around puberty in their teenage years, even into their 20s, who are like really concerned, like, oh, I'm having discharge. But it's okay, because discharge is actually really normal. And to your question, the normal discharge is clear. So like if you're ovulating, you know, we all are, most of us are aware of that like egg white stretchy discharge that literally it's like stretchy for days, like just like an egg white really is the consistency. And that's really to make the environment like happy for sperm to be like, come on in the uterus and don't die. And like, let's fertilize an egg. Like that's what that, that mucus is all about. So if you're trying to get pregnant, amazing. If you're not steer clear, because that is what that discharge is all about. But when you're not ovulating and just having like day-to-day discharge, it can be just, you know, kind of white, kind of tacky, sticky. It can have kind of like a, an ammonia smell or like an acidy smell, but it's not super strong. Like usually most people aren't like able to smell their discharge, just like if they were just sitting around working or whatever, it's not strong and it has like a slight smell to it, but it's not what you would describe as like a bad smell. It's just like kind of a faint smell. So white or clear is normally, is usually normal. So when we start to talk about abnormal discharge, oh, the other piece that I missed is like discharge associated with your cycle. And this can be all different phases. So just like a bruise, like if I had a bruise on my arm, it changes color over time. Cycle blood also changes color over time because it's either new fresh blood that your uterus is like actually bleeding or it's preamble blood, like you're kind of spotty brown or it's old blood and it's like, kind of clumpy and dark. Any of those are normal. So you might, and like I have a, an IUD, so I barely have a period, but I have a lot of like icky discharge during my period time because I'm not like actually bleeding. It's just like a little bit of spotting. So I would say around the time of your cycle, brown, bright red, dark red, you know, it could be like truly like bleeding, but it could also be kind of stuck together like tiny clots or something like that. All that's very normal. And then the abnormal discharge is when we start talking about like infection. So that is if it's like green, if it's yellow, if it's thick and matted, like kind of clumpy on your toilet tissue or in your underwear, not like paste, but like actual like clumpy, or if it's white and thick, those can all be signs of infection, gonorrhea, chlamydia, yeast. Um, And the good thing about all of those is that they're very easily treatable with, you know, a visit. So the important thing is is that you want someone to have eyes and see what's going on because you don't want to be treated for one thing and it actually be another. So if you're having a discharge that you think is consistent with an infection, then it's important to be seen for that. And then, you know, there's other types of things that come th- from the vagina that we worry about. So like if you are menopausal, so you've not had a period for a year, which is the definition of menopause, average age is about 51, and then you start having bleeding again after that, that's a cause for concern. So long story short, thin and white or clear, totally normal. If we're getting into bad smells or different textures or green, yellow, that's usually an infection. And then there's all different variations of bleeding that can kind of wax and wane during the time of your period.
1: Yeah. So I know you mentioned like the brown discharge-ish bleeding. We also had a couple of questions about this. Some people said they got it like right before their period or like the, is that considered your period and that's coming out? So that's all normal. If
0: it's around your period, brown is normal. Totally. So that's not considered your period. Your period is the first day of full flow. That's day one of your cycle. So, I mean, if you have an IUD or you're on like a very low dose birth control you're not going to be able to, like, that's not going to count. But if you're off of contraception or you have a non-hormonal contraception, like a copper IUD, then your first day of your period is the first day of full flow. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Speaking of, of
1: birth control, especially the pill, probably the biggest question we got most often was how do I transition off the pill? I think there's a lot of like fear around it, especially a lot of us, myself included, that were on for 12 years since we were teenagers. And now we're like, we want to go off. How do we do that? So um, any tips you have for transitioning off? Can you go off cold turkey? Are there tips? Like, what do you
0: recommend? Totally. Yeah. I think this is like a thing right now amongst you going <laughs> <Everybody's laughs> It is going a thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I can understand why that is a thing because there's lots of effects of birth control on our bodies. And, you know, one of my big focuses is sexual health. So I think a lot about sexual health, especially in relationship to birth control. So, you know, when we think about coming off of our birth control, so we'll talk about oral pills, for example, because there's lots of... When I say birth control, that means a lot of different things, but we'll talk about oral pills. When you come off of them from a medical standpoint, there's no need to taper off or to taper down or to anything like that. So you can literally just decide to stop and not take any more. I think what we have to remember is... We know a lot, I think, about, we don't know a lot, but we think a lot and talk about why we want to come off of birth control, oral contraceptive pills. But I think it's also important to remember why we, why I like them sometimes. And that could be acne. That could be painful period control. That could be heavy bleeding control. That could be hormonal sort of regulation. So like when we are not on pills, we have a regular cycle, which is what a lot of us want, but that means our hormones are going like this throughout the month. And a lot of times this dip right before your period for me is a lot of anxiety, some like mood changes, and that's not my favorite time, right? So birth control pills can help with that. And then also obviously prevention of pregnancy. And so I think I, I got them all. I'm sure I missed something. But the point is, is that if any of those apply to you, then you might want to have a strategy, particularly for pregnancy prevention, to mitigate those symptoms, right? So if you are our first question and you have really painful or heavy periods and you're going to stop your birth control, what are some other options for mitigating those symptoms so we're not leaving you high and dry, right? So that could be There's another prescription medication that is sort of like a really strong ibuprofen in that family that can help with very heavy and painful periods. You know, so we want to have a conversation. I would at least give your healthcare provider the opportunity to address the whole picture of what it means to stop birth control with you. Now, you might have some that are, you know, gonna try to keep you on it. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because we just see a lot of unintended pregnancies. And especially today, I mean, I'm in Texas, like we're trying to prevent all the pregnancies that we can, because there's just not uh, any options. And so that is, you know, it's like, on one hand, it's like, the pill, we don't know as much as we should about it. But on the other hand, it like, gave us as women the opportunity to go to work and change the world for ourselves, right? And so like, how do we balance that? objective because we don't want to, we don't want that taken away from us, but also like, how can we be more thoughtful about the ways that we're preventing pregnancy or these other symptoms? And once again, I was having a conversation with this the other day. I'm like, birth control is amazing and has given us so much in our lives, but it's kind of a big hammer for a relatively small nail or, or, or lots of small nails. You know, we start to your point, patients who are 13 on contraception, even though birth control, even though they don't need birth control, they need period control, or they need acne control, or they need hormone control. And we're kind of using the same one medicine as our giant hammer for all these nails. And why have women missed out on precision medicine, right? Like we shouldn't, we should have something that addresses these individual needs, disease states, complaints, you know, quality of life issues. And we've just kind of been doling out birth control as that. Now, once again, and there are some new options in there, particularly for endometriosis, for fibroids, there's definitely other options for acne, but sometimes, you know, it's kind of like a risk-benefit conversation. And then, you know, so I think we're not as far as we want to be, but we do have to understand while there may be pros of coming off of contraception, there are also cons. And how do we, how do we deal with those in a responsible way that helps us? accomplish the goals of living sort of healthier and more balanced lives and doesn't work against us in one of those other areas. Mm-hmm. I think that's great advice to like look into why did you
1: start the pill in the first place? What are yeah. those goals? And then having a game plan with your provider. I
0: think that's a, a great, Absolutely. amazing advice. Especially when it comes to contraception, like, mo- like especially when it comes to contraception, you know? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I, I was going
1: to ask you about that next. So are there I want to say like non hormonal ways to prevent yeah. pregnancy like what do you recommend for someone who's like I don't want the pill the pills mess me up or I don't like it or whatever yeah. maybe the IUD not a fan of doesn't work for my body whatever are there other ways that you recommend pregnancy prevention
0: Yes so you know first and foremost it's important for and I know so many so many gynecologists love this conversation because we we know that it can be so empowering for someone to find the right contraception for them So there are a lot of people super passionate about this. So all pills are not created the same, right? So if someone's, it it takes someone often, you know, a couple of tries to kind of find a pill that works for them. But if you're like all done pills, been there, done that, then we talk about those long acting reversible contraceptives or LARCs is what we call them in the OBGYN community. So that includes IUDs and there are different types of hormonal IUDs. And then there's also a copper IUD that doesn't have any hormones in it. So, you know, it'd be helpful in that conversation to understand like, which IUD have you tried? Did you want to try this other kind? Because it doesn't have any hormones in it. But then what are the pros and cons of that type of contraception? Oh, and then there's also the arm implant, right? It has hormones in it. And how might we understand how that could affect our body? In a good or you know negative way, while in addition to preventing pregnancy, and then there's also all the barrier method, methods, right? There's condoms. There's a new birth control that goes in the vagina before sex. It's like a, it's, I want to say cream, but it's not a cream. It's like a, it's like a mixed up. It's like a gel, solution. right? I just heard of that. It's a yeah. gel. Thank you. I couldn't find the <laughs> word gel, and it really acts as like a, you know, that as we were talking about the cervical um, mucus earlier from the discharge makes it a happy environment this makes it a not happy environment for sperm but what we what's important and what I would do if we were in my office is I would get out my trusty chart of how effective all of these things are at preventing pregnancy right so that's you know they kind of go from the most effective is just um, having your tubes tied or removed and that's on the on the table too and I know that that's been a huge there's been a huge boom of that kind of since the overturn of Roe, because people are like I know I don't want to have kids why am I What's the big deal here? You know, so that's always, it's always an option, but it's one that can't be reversed or shouldn't be thought of as being able to be reversed. I think that's something very important to communicate because once, you know, you make the decision to have your tubes tied, the options become very limited for achieving pregnancy in the future. And then there's long acting reversibles, then there's pills, and then there's the barrier method. So that's condoms. These aren't technically barrier methods, but that new vaginal medication, um, spermicide, And so, you know, it's, there's options, which are always good, but none of them are perfect. There's not a right method for every person, but the important thing to know is kind of what those are and, and maybe the next one that you might want to try. And then if it fails, what's your plan in that situation as well? Someone asked how often is
1: too often to take plan B speaking of plans?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the hard part about taking plan B is it's like, if we want to get off birth control and we're taking plan B all the time, we're not doing ourselves any favors, right? If you look at the dose effect of like, okay, I take birth control every day and that gives me this amount of hormones and I take plan B, you know, I don't know, more than a couple of times a quarter, then you're getting much more hormones than you would be if you were just to be on something every day. And so I would look at that like tactic as being much more disruptive to your reproductive system, to your hormones, and kind of working against probably what the person is trying to do in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we don't know is the right, or maybe I don't know is the right answer. Like I haven't looked into the data about like how often is too often to take plan B. But I think that if you think about it from a big picture perspective, and we think about like tactics to accomplish goals, that probably a lower sort of disruption of the hormonal, you know, ecosystem would be a better tactic than, than, you know, taking that large amount of hormones on a regular basis. So like, it shouldn't be used as a birth control method. It should be used for that,
1: like actual emergency contraception for the one time every so often or,
0: yeah. So don't think of it as like, I'm good. I got plan B if I need it. Exactly. There's much less disruptive ways of preventing pregnancy to your body than to take plan B on a regular basis, if that makes sense. Totally. Totally. I think that's great advice. I want to
1: ask this question because I feel like it's one of the ones that people may be too embarrassed to talk to their doctor about, or it's just like there's just not a lot of education. Can you get pregnant
0: from pre cum? Yes, is the answer. You can because there's sperm and pre cum, and all it takes is one eager sperm. And like, you know, it's crazy because there are so many people who struggle with fertility. But if you think about it, our bodies are optimized to get pregnant because that is how, that is propagation of our species, right? So it's, there are a lot of different factors. Pre-cum definitely can cause pregnancy, hundred percent. So that's why like, besides the obvious
1: reasons of the pull method, sometimes there's no pull-out, but like, yeah. that's also why it's
0: not effective. Right. That is not a reliable method of contraception
1: that anybody would recommend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No gynecologist. I'm sure is like, yeah, cool method. Go for it.
0: (laughs) We know a lot of pull out babies is
1: what we would say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So moving more into related to pleasure and sex, a lot of questions about pain during sex, pain with penetration, discomfort. Someone says, I recently feel too tight for my partner. That wasn't a problem in the past. What do I do? So can you discuss like, what do you do when someone comes into your office with pain having to do with penetration?
0: Yes. Sexual pain is so important and so really like under discussed, I think in medicine and also just amongst us as women. So if you look at sexual pain, the numbers are kind of all over the place, but it seems like about 75% of women will experience sexual pain at some point in their lives. Yeah. And that between 10 and 20% of women experience chronic sexual pain. So it's actually a really big deal and totally under discussed and can lead to a lot of other sexual problems and really a lot of other problems, generally speaking. When you talk about sexual pain, there's lots of different types of sexual pain. And you alluded to a few of them there. So there's one that's, you know, pain with even just vulvar or vaginal touch. And like when you're just trying to kind of have any type of penetration, whether it's with a finger, whether it's with a speculum, like at the gynecologist's office, when we're trying to take a look or do a pap smear, or if the person's trying to insert a tampon or obviously if they're having penis and vagina sex, like all of that is painful right here at the opening to the vagina um, on the vulva. And so that is one type of sexual pain. And then there's another type of sexual pain that's at the top of the vagina, which is like when, the, when whatever's penetrating, we'll say it's a penis, is touching the top of the vagina, that's when it hurts. And so there are actually lots of different causes of sexual pain. A lot of times the pain um, at the outside is due to, like muscle tightness or even spasm at the opening. And that can be due to lots of different things. And that's often called vaginismus and can be treated, you know, usually in a multidisciplinary way with a physician, with a pelvic floor physical therapist, sometimes with a pain management therapist who specializes in pelvic floor. And then also sometimes with the support of a coach or a therapist as well. Because what happens is it's like, okay, I've tried to, you know, pretend I'm this patient. I've tried to have sex a few times. I've tried to use a tampon. This becomes a thing for me now because sex is a huge part of kind of who we are as humans, but also a huge part of like the narrative of society. And if I'm unable to have penetrative sex or even use a tampon or go to the gynecologist, that's going to create a story in my head about who I am as a woman, about, you know, who I am as a sexual being, about who I am as a partner and That usually has gone on for a long time because this onsets a lot of times, you know, from the very beginning of whenever maybe you're trying to put a tampon in or you're trying to have sex for the first time. And so we really try to work as a multidisciplinary team to kind of fix whatever is the physical problem, um, support the pain while we're fixing the physical problem, and then also try to rewrite the story about who you are as a person, who you are as a partner, who you are as a sexual being. And, you know, it's worth it because so many women go through life with that. Pain forever. And it really takes a toll on them as individuals and their relationships as well. So it's important to me to discuss how common that is, but also how there are evidence based treatments to get help with people who are really knowledgeable about it. Now, the deeper pain can be from lots of things. I would say the thing we think about most often is endometriosis. They could also be due to a bladder um, problem. It could be due to a bowel problem like IBS or chronic constipation or Crohn's. It could be due to fibroids, which are benign non-cancerous growths in the uterus, which take the uterus from being the size of a fist and it can get kind of really big. So whenever you're having sex against the cervix, then it puts pressure on that larger uterus. It can be due to pregnancy. It can be due to ovulation. It can be due to pelvic inflammatory disease, which is an infection in the uterus and tubes and um, maybe even in the abdomen from an STD. Um, So there's lots of different causes of pelvic and sexual pain. But it's really important to try to get it figured out because the longer you go with sexual pain, the bigger of a negative effect it can have kind of on all aspects of your life, particularly sexual desire. And that's something really important. Like, if, which do you want, like, does it sound exciting to you to go and stick your hand in a fire? No, because you learned at a very young age that that was a bad idea and you wanna protect yourself from being harmed. So, if a woman or a person generally is having sexual pain, They do not want to have sex. They do not want to be intimate. They don't want to even kind of broach that because it's an uncomfortable space for them. So it can really lead to a lot of sort of snowball effects that start from a primary treatable issue. But because we don't talk about these things, because we as physicians aren't as well trained as we should be about these things, then it can lead to lifetimes of you know negative, bigger effects that are unnecessary. And a huge part of like, the work that I do is to try to untangle that on the patient side and on the physician side as well. That's such a good
1: point about the emotional and mental and even like relationship you have to sex and how important it is obviously for your physical body, but also that emotional and mental component too. That's so important. So bottom line, like talk Absolutely.
0: to your doctor about it and find the root cause because you everyone deserves pleasure. It's the World Health Organization says that it's a fundamental human right, and it is. And I think we agree with that. We just have a hard time connecting the dots from that belief to like putting that in action because we have not been taught how to talk about sex. We don't know who we can talk to it about. Like, and physicians feel the same way. Like, most of them don't ask their patients about this stuff because they are concerned about how their patients will perceive them. Like, what will they say if their patient says yes? And the patients feel the same way. They're, how do their doctors? perceive them like ah it just gets like very icky and the same happens in relationships too where we want to and we know we should be able to talk to our partners about sex but we try <laughs> and maybe we become empowered with conversations with our girlfriends or you know whatever but the words are just it's hard for the words to come out and i've seen it happen over and over and we just have to do a better job as a society with you know using words like vulva and orgasm and vagina and pleasure because that way, whenever we get in those conversations, we have access to that line of thinking and conversation so we can communicate what it is we need, what it is we deserve. And as part of our overall healthcare experience, which is something I'm so passionate about. We understand that that's the case for men, right? There's 26 FDA approved medications for erectile dysfunction. <laughs> and, you know, Medicare, which is funded by the government, pays for penis pumps And on the women's health side, like we have two FDA approved medications. None of our medications are paid for. It's just, there's a huge discrepancy with how we understand men's sexual health as part of their overall health and where we've placed women's sexual health as part of our overall health. And there's a lot of work to be done to make that, you know, a little more equitable. Totally. That's,
1: those are amazing, amazing points. And what you just said about how, When we go to our gynecologist, or it's easier, I'll say, for people to be like, I have this symptom, I have this bad period issue, but to talk about sex and are these things normal? Can I get pregnant from pre-cum? I mean, that like people don't feel uncomfortable talking to even their doctor about it because you're exactly what you're saying. We do not see sexual health as being the same thing as health, what it is. Like it's an essential piece of it. So I love that you said that. Speaking of concepts and maybe words that people feel uncomfortable talking to their doctors about, why does squirting happen?
0: And is it normal? If so, how much? So there's a lot of controversy about squirting, right? So even in the sexual health field, which I'm fully entrenched in, there are like full on debates at our conferences about squirting. (laughs) And some people are like, it's a real thing. It's from this gland, you know, and other people are like, it's pee. And then these people are like, <laughs> we tested it. It's not pee. And then these people are like, I don't believe you. So it is even in like the science world, it is fraught with controversy. I think most people believe that it's a thing and that just like, you know, men, there is like this, well, we already know this, this is a scientific fact that during women's orga- orgasm, that the pelvic floor contracts, right? And that some types of orgasm, meaning contractions in certain areas, can squeeze on this specific gland and cause squirting to happen. And so I think that, you know, if I were if someone were to say, Lindsay, what do you what do you think is the scientific truth? I would that's where I would put, you know, my belief, but also another paper could come out in six months where I'll be like, well, I was wrong. You know, so this is definitely like female orgasm, generally speaking, is a very understudied field. Um, as well as, you know, we just mapped the full anatomy of the clitoris, like, you know, 15 years ago. It's just, it's unbelievable. And, you know, women and our physicians are still calling Vulvas, vaginas, anything you can see on the outside is a vulva. So everybody fix that now. So it's you know there's a lot still left to be done, and unfortunately, squirting is one of those topics that comes up all the time, and patients have so many questions about. But we have way more questions than we do answers. You know, I think the what's the normal amount is really also very hard to say. It's usually you know a, a teaspoon, two teaspoons, something like that. It's not like it's the bed. But I think that once again, there's just like so much we don't know about it. And also like the sexual responses, a little bit complex, meaning people have different responses to pleasure and the release that is experienced with orgasm. I think while it's helpful to know the science behind it, I don't think in terms of a sexual experience, we have to be experiencing it from a scientific perspective, right?
1: Good point.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, let's, experience pleasure. Let's figure out what feels good to us. Let's try to communicate that to our partners. And let's like come from a place of curiosity and like joy and, you know, fun rather than like, ah, what is happening? Is this normal? You know, and that's normal because we we don't want to be abnormal, but also we want to get to a place in a relationship where we can, you know, kind of feel free to explore the way our bodies respond, whatever that might be. I love that point. That's so true. Like, let's just, you know, obviously, if it's causing
1: you pain or discomfort, or there's right, then sure, we want to change that. But if it's, if you're just all in your head about what's normal, what's not, maybe we move away from that and just experience the pleasure and how our bodies want to feel right. it. Exactly. So I love that. Yeah. I love yeah. that. Great. So, I want to go back into fertility because it's obviously a huge topic. And another question we got time and time again was, what should I be doing for my fertility? For example, someone says that they're 30 years old, they're not planning on having kids anytime soon, but they want children eventually. What should they do? Someone else says they want to start trying in a year. Should they they be doing anything now? So going back to that big fertility conversation, if having a pregnancy is a goal for someone in the future,
0: are there anything that they should be doing now or starting to look into? Yeah, such a great question. I mean, and this, you know, all of these answers for me as a physician, I have to go back to what do we know from a science perspective? What have there been studies on that we could reproduce and we come up with the same results kind of over and over? And so some of those things are really just optimizing your lifestyle, which is such a boring answer because it's the same answer for everything, but it's just true. And so some of those things include Never, like not smoking. We know like hands down that smoking is terrible for your fertility and also just your health generally, but specifically for your egg quality and also sperm quality. So we're going to put away the cigarettes. We don't have a ton of data on marijuana, but it doesn't seem to be positive for fertility. So I would also stop smoking marijuana or whatever to eating gummies and also not, I would just recommend just let's not do nicotine or drugs. Like that's not a good idea in terms of alcohol. You know, there's tons of data about alcohol, generally speaking, and it goes back and forth. Everyone's like, yes, one glass of wine. It's great for my health. And then the next, article you read. And it's like actually zero alcohol is amount as how much you're, you can have and be healthy. So I would say, you know, and I've always counseled my patients that if you're thinking about getting pregnant within the next few months, moderation is the key. Like I wouldn't be like, you know, go into Vegas anytime soon. Or if you are, (laughs) let's practice moderation. But, you know, and certainly not like if you think you may be pregnant, things like that. And I also get a lot of questions about, well, if I am pregnant, how much alcohol is safe? And So we can go into all that if you want to, but it's going to be a boring answer. (laughs) Then the other things are just being, leading a healthy lifestyle. How much movement are you getting? And it's movement in a, in a healthy range, right? We don't want to be Really like training for a marathon that doesn't help with ovulation or, you know, really hitting it hard. But we also don't want to be what we call in medicine sedentary, which means I sit at my computer for 10 hours a day and then I move over to the couch, right? We need to have movement in our lives and hopefully it's on, you know, a regular basis, kind of peppered throughout the day. But there's no hard and fast like number in terms of like steps or something like that. We just want to be lead- leading an active lifestyle. And then of course there's diet and making sure you're getting plenty of, um, vitamins and minerals and protein from the diet that you're eating. And that will sort of set your body. Oh, the last thing I forgot to mention is stress. Stress is, you know, part of all of our lives, especially if we are probably, you know, trying to improve ourselves and thinking about getting pregnant, there's, it's probably low likelihood that you're not stressed, but as much as you can do to mitigate it, prioritize sleep over You know, whatever else. Like if your goal is, I'm going to, you know, want to have a pregnancy in six months to a year, these are the types of things you can be doing to try to optimize that. Um, And it's always better to get your nutrition through your food rather than through vitamins, but vitamins also aren't harmful. So, you know, something that, that people can consider. So those are the things, but I would also want to, you know, have like a, if you are taking contraception or you have a long acting reversible contraception, you might want to have a game plan around that. Usually you need that out for, you know, I would usually counsel my patients two months prior to trying to get pregnant. It doesn't, they don't need much longer than that to kind of get back to their regular cycles if they were having regular cycles, which is an important point because a lot of us start oral contraception. Or larks for irregular periods, and then we go off of it, and our irregular periods resume, and that can be a fertility challenge. So if you were having irregular periods before, then that may be a conversation you want to have with your provider because it might take you a little longer, or you might need a little extra, you know, help in terms of ovulation to become pregnant. The next question, I guess, the next kind of step in
1: this that I'm curious about is, I feel like turning 30 for women. It feels like this scary age, obviously shouldn't, and it's unfair, but it's almost like we feel like when we're turning 30, we have to have a game plan and like, oh my God, we're like, there's that, like, I'm thinking of like the new girl episode. If you watch that show where she's 32 or something and she starts freaking out about her egg quality. And so I'm just so curious if someone's turning 30 or they're in their mid thirties, however long, you know, how, whatever age they are, but just like, if they start to be like, oh my gosh. I do want kids in the future, but I'm nowhere close, maybe not in their career, not in their partnership, whatever. They're not ready. Is there anything that they can do to start planning that? Or like, how do you recommend going about that?
0: Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it's never too, uh, maybe it is sometimes too early. I was, I was going to maybe phrase that wrong. I would say after 30, it's probably never too early to have an egg freezing conversation. And that's not accessible for many people. So this is like a very unfair conversation to, you know, suggest, but for those who are in a position, or at least maybe for everyone who's considering it, have the conversation. So at least, you know, because I think sometimes we're worried that, Oh, that won't be attainable for us. We can't afford it. Sometimes, you know, companies nowadays have egg freezing benefits. Sometimes there are companies who can work with us on payment plans to make it work. But if you know, like if, if having a biological child is extremely important to you you're in your 30s and your you know plans to actually become pregnant and and deliver a, a baby are far away then i would do it because i as a physician as someone who's like taking care of so many women you know who have struggled would never want you to be in a position that you could have potentially prevented had you had access to those resources it's one thing to know that they exist and to decide not to do it or to know that they exist and to say, well, this stinks, but it's not attainable for me. But it's another thing entirely to not know that it exists or for no one to tell you about it. And then you get to be 37, 39, 43. And you're like, oh my God, why did no one tell me? And that to me is the biggest disservice. And so I think it's worth a conversation no matter what, if you're over 30 and you think that those plans might be far away. So at least you can be educated and informed about what your options are. And then the ball's in your court to make a decision. It's nothing that was taken from you, you know, in a way that feels really just unfair and wrong. Is there any age that's too old to
1: have the egg freezing conversation? Some people said like, I'm 38. Is it too late? I'm in pre Is that too late? Like, is there, I'm assuming there's a too late age.
0: There is a too late age. But once again, it's kind of like the conversation we were having earlier about like, When's my fertile window? And when am I gonna go through menopause? It's really hard to make a generalization. I would say this the, the younger the better, the older the worse. But there's not like a you're too old. There may be within a particular practice, but there's not necessarily like as a widely accepted. I would say if your periods are irregular and you think it's because of perimenopause, that's not gonna probably you know, get a good quality egg. But once again, I'm a person on a podcast. I have no idea who you are. <laughs> Please check with your doctor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So like I would, t- I would counsel everyone to get that individualized conversation so that they can really know what is a possibility for them and not, you know, some narrative that may or may not apply to them. No, I
1: think that's so helpful. And and there might be like the, the people that were asking these questions about, am I too late to freeze my eggs. I think that in itself of like, every body is different. Every situation's different. So go talk to your doctor is helpful. Whereas, you know, someone might've been like, oh, I've heard that anything after 35 is you're in that geriatric pregnancy. So I, so I've lost my window anyway. So there's no hope in trying. So I think just the statement of everything is different. Every situation's different. Go talk to your doctor about your options and your body is in itself a very helpful answer. People need to hear for sure. Okay. I know we're already at an hour and I have so many more questions, but I would love to to wrap up with some kind of just like more like rapid fire questions about vaginal health because we got some interesting sure. questions here. Okay. This is a big question. I know a lot of people out there listening will need to hear. Someone wrote, I got an irregular pap smear and I'm terrified. What do they really mean and how common are they?
0: Yes, they are so common. They're usually caused by HPV, which is a sexually transmitted virus for which there is a vaccination. We should all be vaccinated. And that can over time potentially, rarely, transform into cervical cancer. So HPV is ubiquitous, meaning it's everywhere. Almost everyone has it at some point in their lives or another. Everyone has abnormal PAPS. They freak people out. And most of the time they're no big deal at all. But I tell I bet you if you asked five of your friends, four of them have had an abnormal PAP smear at some point or another.
1: Okay. I was going to ask that. How many people typically They're so have are so common. The vast majority of women do. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Is it true that I heard this myth? I don't know if this is true or not. If you have, have penetrative sex the day before you get a pap smear that
0: it can cause an abnormal result. Is that true or not true? I mean, it's possible, but also there's a lot of other things that are possible that can cause an abnormal result. But I wouldn't say that like Penetrative sex causes an HPV positive test on your pap smear where there wouldn't have been one otherwise, or it causes it can cause like the lowest level of abnormality, which we call ascus. But it's not something that I would like worry or talk or think a lot about. Okay, that is
1: very helpful. I love that answer.
0: Are you just as likely to get an STI from oral as penetrative sex? Depends on the STI. If we're talking about herpes, then. Yes. If you're talking about HIV, probably not, but still possible. Gonorrhea and chlamydia can get really funny places like the eye and even other places, but less likely. So it's probably less likely with the exception of herpes, but still want to be careful, you know, be tested regularly, ask that your partners are tested regularly and, you know, be a mini gynecologist and do it, do a quick exam. See what you see. <laughs> love
1: that. I love that. Many many mini, <laughs> mini gynecologists to all of us. Yeah. I love it. Okay, this is interesting. What is the healthiest or safest method of hair removal down there?
0: I get this question all the time. Really? I think it's really what yes, people want to know, what is everyone doing with their pubic hair?
1: <laughs> How do <laughs> I
0: like what's the deal? So here's the thing. I mean, some people can shave for years and never have a problem ever, right? But other people shave one time and they get like 20 ingrams. So there's, it's kind of depends on your hair type. It depends on your skin sensitivity. There's also waxing. I mean, I can't wax my eyebrows because my skin is so sensitive. So I've I've never, ever once <laughs> waxed my vulva cuz i'm scared to death. And then obviously there's laser hair removal which, you know, not all laser technicians are created equal, but some women get great results with that. I would just make sure you're going to like a really reputable place. You might want to steer clear of like, you know, really good deals on laser therapy on your vulva because that might not go how you want it to go. So, you know, it's really what works best for you. There is a whole other movement of like leave your pubic hair alone. Don't shave it. I mean, the thing is, it's like, I want everyone to do what makes them feel sexy, what makes them feel amazing. And so there's no like right or wrong answer, but, and you also don't have to do anything. Do gynecologists ever,
1: because I'm going to ask this. Because I know a lot of people are thinking this. Do they ever think like, oh, this patient didn't shave or like, oh, it's patchy, Never. or literally <laughs> like, thank not you for one saying time. saying that.
0: <laughs> yes. People are like, do the craziest things for their, they're like, put on some scented lotion or like, you know, one, <laughs> one patient, like, put did some glitter art one time, you know, and I'm like, wow, extra. And yeah. you, but also like, yeah. I'm here as a doctor, like I'm going to be examining you. And it's, it's like, if, it's like asking a dermatologist if they care if their patient is bald or has a full head of hair. It literally yeah. does not matter. It's like, it's not a thing and it doesn't matter at all.
1: I definitely have had those moments where I've said to my gynecologist, like, oh, sorry, I didn't shave. I'm like, I'm why so do they sorry. care? Yes. Like, <laughs> They don't care. Or like, I apologize. Yeah, they don't care. They don't yeah, care. They don't care. That. <laughs> no. Okay, the last question I want to end on is related to, I guess, like the anatomy or the aesthetic of the vulva. We got yeah. some questions about, you know, do some women's clitorises poke out more than others? Some questions about how common labiaplasties are. So can you just speak yeah. on again, going back to that word we hate, which is normal, but like when it comes yeah. to the appearance and the aesthetic of vulva, what is normal? Yeah.
0: Yes. This is such a good question. I love it so much because I think what we've, we we do not get to see a lot of vulvas unless you're a gynecologist, you know, you see like right. just porn vulvas, right. And porn vulvas often have had vulva, like a uh, labiaplasty or they've been like digitally altered to, you know, be this, this vulva that none of us have. (laughs) And so like, here's the thing. Oftentimes the labia minora, which are the small lips that don't have hair can be uneven. One of them can hang down the labia majora. Like we talked about all different types of hair. There's been some great, I would say vulva art in the past, you know, few years where you can really look and see, oh my God, like they're not all porn vulvas. And there's one that looks like mine. And that seems totally normal. And so I think really spreading that message of like, just like we all have different noses, we all have different vulvas. And that's just an individual part of who we are. So it doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong and one is desirable and one is not. It's just We've seen one a lot and it happened to be associated with like sexual excitation in our brains. And so we've kind of been habituated to this, just like we've been habituated to certain versions of beauty and thinness and X, you know, X, Y, Z, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down. So I think when we think about it kind of as a feminist issue like that, then we can reframe like, Hey, my vulva rocks. And unless there's something that's functional, like I have had patients in the past, like, they're like, I can't wear jeans because my vulva hang down and that is painful. Or I had a patient who was a horse or like an equestrian and her vulva were interfering with her riding. So if there's like a functional problem, those are people who need labiaplasty. And, you know, in terms of the size of the clitoris, the clitoris actually becomes engorged with, with like when we experience erection, just like men do. And so it is a, a an erectile tissue. So when we are aroused, the clitoris gets more blood flow and it expands and you know pulsates and becomes aroused just like men's penises do. And so there are normal variations in the size of the clitoris. A clitoris, there are certain ones that are like, you measure them as the gynecologist and you're like, hmm, this is outside of the normal variation. And so then you may, that may be something to look into. So if that's something that you're, that's bothering, you could always ask your gynecologist, she can take a look or he can take a look and say, this is actually within the normal range or, hey, this is something we should look into. So I think if you're concerned, once again, you got to talk to your doctor, but if it's purely an aesthetic concern, it may be worth reframing and saying, hey, like I'm part of changing the narrative for women and our sexual health. And because of that, I'm not going to fake orgasms. And I'm going to like be proud of my vulva the way that it is. And I'm going to, you know, ch- communicate to my partner that 85% of women have orgasms through clitoral stimulation. And these are, these are my charges. Then I think you can live like empowered in that message. Alternatively, like, you know, if you want to have plastic surgery, that's also your prerogative and no one's here to like shame you about that or whatever. I would just be very careful because you're operate you're getting a surgery on sexual tissue, which can affect your sexual function and your experience of pleasure. So, you know, it's not a very straightforward conversation and one you want to be really informed about and make the decision really carefully. Would you say that in porn, labiaplasty
1: is like extremely common? Like that's how they get to look kind of one way?
0: You know, I don't, I haven't looked at the data on porn and labiaplasty, but I've looked at enough vulvas to tell you that most vulvas don't look like porn vulvas. So I don't <laughs> good know. Answer. It's not yeah. really a study, but like my- It's experience. your own study.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, that, I think that's helpful because that's, like you said, that's where most women are getting their idea of this is how vulvas are supposed to look. Mine doesn't look like that. So just to hear, it's okay that your vulva looks like yours. That's great advice. That's a great answer. Dr. Lindsay, thank you for sharing all of your amazing expertise. This was so wonderful. And I think you cleared up so much misconceptions and myths and concerns for people. So thank you so much for being here and talking to me. It was so
0: fun. Yay, completely my pleasure. Appreciate the opportunity and really you, you know, being passionate about spreading this information to everybody who's listening. So thanks so much.
1: But wait, before you go, do you want to win a three-month gold membership to the Rosie app? The gold membership includes full access to Rosie's erotica library, a personalized wellness plan, and unlimited workshops and group coaching sessions with sex experts. All you have to do is comment on the latest post sharing today's episode at the Every Girl Podcast on Instagram and leave a rating and review telling us what you loved about the show on Apple Podcasts. Also, just a reminder that nothing you hear on this podcast is intended to be medical advice ever. Always speak to your doctor if you're interested in making any changes based on what you heard in this episode. Hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll talk to you next Tuesday.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quins.